Hey y'all, welcome to Well, Well, Well by LRH Wellness. I'm your host, Lexi, and this is where we dive deep into all things health and wellness. Here we get into the wellness weeds, call out health inequities, and work towards living a more well life, all centering Black perspectives. Welcome to another episode of Well, Well, Well. It's me, Lexi. I'm so happy to be back with you guys and have this episode, but it is so wild to think that June is almost over. We have three more episodes in this, you know, whirlwind of episode production, and I am just really excited to share with you what these next two are. So they're in a wonderful conversation with one another, and I'm just so you know, interested to see how you guys will react to kind of the different dynamics that these two guests parse out. And today we have Sydney Roberts. And before I kind of go into the episode, you know, it was really interesting hearing her perspective. I know Sydney pretty personally, and it's always interesting to hear about work life from nips and pieces and then hear it all at once in this kind of formalized interview. But What's really interesting is, you know, black capitalism, thinking of socialism and how we all fit in those systems. And I come to you with no true answers, only my own opinions, as you all know. But what Sydney reveals in, in conversation with Rob, whose episode will come out on Friday, is that we all kind of have a role in these systems, whether we like it or not, and how we leverage our positionality in those systems is what matters. And this is her perspective, and it was really cool to kind of dive into it. So Sydney is just a complete boss and is working in corporate America, and you know she dives into her experience being a black woman in corporate America. And I think you guys will really enjoy this interview. Make sure you follow Sydney at the links below in the show notes. But here's our interview. I think you will really enjoy it. Okay. Hi, Sydney. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm just so excited to have you on Well, Well, Well. So tell, here. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what made you want to get into finance. <laughs> Yeah, so I would say I wasn't the traditional background, although I think my resume often makes it seem like I am. <laughs> um, so I actually went to undergrad thinking I wanted to be a doctor. I spent, or actually specifically pre-dental, my father's a dentist, my grandfather um, was a dentist. And so I went in studying chemistry, kind of going down that path. After, I would say one day randomly woke up and kind of had a series of things in my life going on that made me rethink about, am I happy in school? And am I happy with what I'm really Mm -hmm. trying to do? Decided ultimately I didn't want to be a doctor. And Mm -hmm. rather than I would say going into specifically finance, I more tried to find a job that had all of the characteristics that I was trying to personally grow from. And Mm -hmm. banking just really had a lot of that overlap. So I spent two summers working um, at a bulge bracket in the city as an intern and then ultimately kind of just found the the section of it that I think that I enjoy um, if not for my entire career at least at least for the kind of time being yeah and so have you ever worked with black women in finance like in your career thus far 
No, I have not worked for, with any black women. I have never been in a work setting where there's been um, another black woman sort of at either, well, my first term there was one black woman in my class and one black woman who was a first year associate. Um, mm -hmm. And that was it for the entire investment bank at a huge bank, which was obviously surprising. Um, and I've honestly not really worked with a ton of women in terms of senior up while there have been some on my level, not a ton above. <laughs> wow. I mean, so full disclosure, everybody, I know Sydney because my boyfriend worked, used to work with Sydney. So I understand, I'm not <laughs> surprised by this because I know what his office looked like, but that sounds like it effing sucks and you can, yeah. but uh, yeah. it sounds like it really fucking sucks. How do you deal with that? How do you keep your sanity? So as you mentioned your boyfriend, I would definitely say my first um, firm in the first couple of years coming out, if I didn't have um, both your boyfriend and another black guy that were in my class, I would not have survived. And I would say we had this sort of look we gave each other. I would send a text, say, hey, I need to go for a walk. And we'd spend 20 minutes walking outside and kind of decompressing and you got to really be your full self. Um, I think I probably, as a result, became like their sister because they dealt with black women stuff with me just like they would have if they were a black woman kind of because they were the only ones there. Um, but it was finding, I think, people that I felt supported by, but also really having to um, like have friends and family that I could call or text. And ultimately I did kind of have to bite my tongue on certain things because there aren't yeah. always people who notice what you notice. For sure. And so kind of thinking about like people noticing what you notice and having to bite your tongue, I'm sure microaggressions and problematic nature of things were rampant on not only just race, but you know, the whole woman thing. Do you feel that there is progress in the banking industry and in these kind of corporate spaces as more women go to the top or do you feel like it's the kind of the token types of people who are yeah you know it, it's tough because I think when we hear diversity um, and all of the firms especially with the past year um, I'd say across the corporate spectrum and, and within finance as well there's big talks about diversity. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, those often exclude black women. So yeah. you'll see an increase in the amount of white women in the workspace and the increase in the amount of black men in the workspace. Um, and in my experience, sometimes those people are really supportive of black women and sometimes mm -hmm. they're not because yeah. sometimes they think, well, we got in the door or maybe that was something and they themselves don't necessarily realize, hey, the same thing that kept you out that you're saying, hey, I'm a white woman and I'm just as mm -hmm. talented as the white men, you're saying this or not realizing that you're saying this on another level. And, and I would say different, but um, would not say those interactions haven't also happened with black men in the workplace. So mm -hmm. it, it's, I would say it's a difficult, there is progress. I often think that it will be in the next generation when we are seniors, when I'm, a, when I'm an MD, oftentimes people aren't listening to the analyst that's super outspoken and I will always be that person on the desk but they will more likely listen to an associate or as you sort of go up the totem yeah. pole. And I'd say that's not necessarily fair. Um, and it is something that I unfortunately don't like about it, but I do think that there are places that are getting better. I think the team I work on now, um, no one is perfect, but I think we often try to have these conversations um, and, and make it more of a point where I think 
in other places that I'd either worked or had friends work. It wasn't even a conversation that sort of came to the forefront. Yeah. Um, so that I would say has been a progress that I've at least recognized over my three years in the industry. Yeah. And so, you know, conversations about race are so uncomfortable for people, but, and I think that's, you know, across the board, right. But particularly in conversations with Ray, that's my boyfriend, everybody, if I haven't said that, but conversation about wellness in business is is very uncomfortable as well. And there's this like mentality that you just need to grind. And I mean, so full disclosure, I had an interview before this with somebody from the Democratic Socialists of America. And so I'm sure from their perspective, they're talking about capitalism and the grind culture and all of that. But where do you see the discomfort in this conversation about wellness coming from and like health? Yeah, I, I think that so that's something where um, you now 100% throw out race and it unfortunately is viewed as a weakness. Um, I'm someone who has been very open. I've struggled with mental health in regards to anxiety since I was extremely young. And so obviously being in a high stress work environment, those things are always the things that make sense. Um, but on the flip side, I would say there are, there are benefits I have from being very hyper aware of certain things that have been allowed that have allowed me to succeed really well. Um, so it's one of those things where I, it, it's tough. I don't think that people view wellness. Someone recognizes going to the gym as a necessity, but not needing an hour a week for therapy. And mm-hmm. that's been something where being home for COVID has made it so much easier. I have my time in my calendar and it's blocked off and my team just doesn't even necessarily know that that's the time that I go to therapy, but mm-hmm. it's kind of been a concern when I go back into the office, how do I transition into being able to do that again? Um, it's something that I think is, it's difficult. People don't necessarily want to have those conversations. And I think people are fearful of speaking out about whether they're struggling with something holistically, or maybe in, even in just a moment with saying, oh, it's going to affect what, what my bonus is. It's going to affect how someone perceives mm-hmm. me. Um, and, and maybe at times it has happened for me, but I think I'm comfortable getting that one tier below if that meant, hey, I was able to stay sane and not want to lose it. Um, but un- unfortunately, it's something that I think every person is going through in terms of figuring out is this something I'm going to bring up or not. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And so, you know, there's, <laughs> have you watched Industry before? Yes. Show? So if you haven't watched that show, it's on HBO and it's, you know, about the banking or consulting type of industry. And it depicts like this black woman, Harper, her experience really primarily. And in it, you see her deal with these intense panic attacks. And do you feel that that show was like an accurate representation of Banking, but particularly banking as a black woman or like being just yeah. in this finance world, this corporate world. Yeah. So I, I actually, when I first heard about the show and then I had realized it was a black woman in banking, well, immediately a bunch of my friends, whether they were kind of from work or not, texted me, you have to watch the show. You have to watch the show. I watched the trailer. Um, I was in the middle of a really busy time at work and I just thought it would be way too triggering to watch it on yeah. television. So I waited probably until the season was over and watched it over the holidays, I would say a lot of it is really accurate. Um, it does show 
it's obviously dramatized, but mm-hmm. I, Ray and I could both, I think, write at least a season of a show with our intern summer in terms of kind of the craziness that happens both in the workplace and out of the workplace. Um, I think there's a lot of things that, the, the, when I even when I was watching her panic attacks and, and one of her interactions with one of her bosses, like it was reminding me of an experience I had had with a boss where okay, you're kind of, you're you're not necessarily realizing, oh, I'm getting affirmation in one regard, but it's also not necessarily the best work Mm -hmm. environment. Um, So that was really relatable. And I would say a lot was really true. One thing I wish the show did touch on more is I don't think they really touched on the fact that she was black. I think they touched Mm -hmm. on the fact that she was a woman, but I think you could have really, I would, I would question how often even her being black or even the word black was used in the in the first season so I do think that's something I hope they put in more but I did really appreciate at least seeing representation and showing how many countless shows have I seen um whether it's business world generally or or finance specifically where you don't see any black people in it at all so Mm -hmm. to see a black woman I think it did make me feel like hey I'm seen but let's continue to see what types of conversations are happening around and on the show yeah. And so in this show, for people who haven't watched, there's a scene where Harper, the main character, is just eviscerated by her boss. She just yelled at and just so it, it makes me and, you know, you don't have to share any personal experience with this yeah. if you've had one yourself. But it makes me question how you can have like right, like one of the six dimensions of wellness is occupational wellness, an idea that your job should provide you some sort of wellness it should be meaningful fulfilling work or at least permit you to do things that fulfill you in other ways seeing seeing something so frankly abusive like that right and I think abuse occurs in workplaces across the board no matter what industry you're in but that culture is normalized I think in a lot of corporate finance how do you step into the workplace knowing that might happen on a day-to-day basis and how do you kind of protect your your energy yeah so um I would say now versus my old my old working environment um I never deal with that now I would mm-hmm. say my my MDs talk to me like I'm their equal like in terms of a polar opposite um that I I probably haven't experienced in like at least a year and a half um but those scenes that happened I, I could name 50 times that happened to me. Um, I worked with a person and worked with some people that the unfortunate reality was if you performed well at the end of the year, the fact that you would yell at an analyst or any of that was kind of just accepted. Um, that's something where I think you have to assess, is this the right work environment for me? And I ultimately just assessed that it wasn't the right work environment for me. So I am someone that, yeah, workplace wellness is really important. And I preferred being in an environment where I was happy and felt sane than, oh, I'm going to, what is the prestige of this name versus that name? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a difficult thing. I think the hard part is in a lot of these environments, you were almost trained to believe, and, and it's true that behind you there are 10 people that would take your seat and take your job and I think people don't necessarily realize that this culture yeah the culture is better than it was in the set in the 80s um but it's still not great I do think that interns sometimes think this is what you have to put up with and analysts think this is what you have to put up with um and it is a really big 
negative on the industry in general that I, that I really don't like. And I hope that as I get older, I just don't transition into being one of those types of bosses. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if you saw this circulating on the Twitters, but (laughs) there was like a wellness survey, I think Goldman had done for their interns and so for people who didn't see this, it was virtually everybody's mental health was to shit. And people were saying like, they get maybe five hours of sleep. Like they cry most nights out of, you know, yeah. out of the week. And like, they don't have time for basic hygiene. They only have two hours to themselves a day, like during the pandemic, right? Yeah. That's the context. Yeah. So when you see things like that, it's really easy for people to say, how do you how do you work like that like how do you not just quit yeah can you talk to it's, me a little bit about like yeah what you say to those people <laughs> so it's 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 a few things I think it's one it's the support system I think for sure my worst work life balance was my first 12 to 15 months on the desk um I worked break in a test at least for a four month period where I was sleeping like four hours a night and working like almost every, probably every Sunday and two out of four Sunday, Saturdays a month. Um, it takes a, it takes a toll on you as, as, as physically, like I, when I'm in those sort of times, you almost become delusional. And I think the, the part that makes you not want to quit is one the fact that the door is closing quickly. And if you leave as an analyst or you leave as an associate, whenever you choose to leave finance generally, if it's something that you're interested in, mm-hmm. um, it's hard to get back in. And so I think that's often why when you get an internship that took you, oh, four months of recruiting and all this time and countless trips to the New York City and talking to junior interns and all this, and you get an internship and okay, you're putting up with all this, but your view is, oh, it's only 10 weeks. And then I get to the end of the 10 weeks and you're being paid mm-hmm. well. And so you, you feel great and you feel like you're almost earning. And it's, it's, I think it's so toxic. Honestly, you earn this mm-hmm. like badge of honor of, hey, I did banking. Hey, I, yeah. I'm, I'm strong because I did this. Um, but then you talk to people who are second year analysts and they're like, I don't care about my team. I don't care about this job. I'm good to go I'm I'm done. And you almost just wonder, why did we have to get all the way there? Why couldn't it have been mm-hmm. almost a, a softer, it didn't need to just be so harsh for maybe people would stay longer and, and people have issues with, okay, how do we keep retention up? Well, if analysts maybe felt happier and, and all this, um, but it's, it's difficult. It's, I think I didn't quit because I saw that from doing it, it would get me to an end goal that I wanted. And I do think that I've learned a lot from being put in that environment. Um, but the hard part I think is being in that and then also working with people that aren't then positive. The way I yeah. always work with my team is have me work till 5 a.m. That's totally fine. The next morning, I'm gonna come in with a smile. You come in with a smile. Mm-hmm. If you come in with an attitude at 4 a.m. or an attitude in the next morning, now I have a bad attitude all day. And, and yeah. that just makes the whole thing worse. Um, but that's just kind of me. And I think everyone else, what you, each person then kind of stays for their own reason, but it's, it's a difficult question, I think for Mm -hmm. sure. 
And so a lot of people are going to hear you say, I'm okay working till 5 a.m. as long as you come <laughs> with a style and say, this bitch is crazy. Like oh, a, lot yeah, of, no, a lot of people are going to hear that and be like, what the fuck? So like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. let's be real. Like you guys make good money. Like yeah. I know how much my boyfriend makes. I know, <laughs> like, I know, I know what the situation is and, but it, it has to be more than the money because you can make good money doing no, a yeah. lot of different things that don't keep you up until five in the morning. Yeah. So there has to be something else. So really like, yeah. what do you think it is, especially as like a black person in this industry, because you are frankly degraded at a level that other people aren't. Like mm-hmm. when you're thinking of your wellness and the things you do have to sacrifice to be in the industry, like what about it for you was like so appealing that made it yeah. made you willing to like kind of deal with it? I think for me, it was really in terms of the the rooms. If you Hamilton followers, like the room where it happens is truly real. And the fact that mm-hmm. at 23, I'm 25 now, the, the deals that I've been able to be a part of, really the conversations where you're hearing industry leaders and titans in, in all these different areas making major decisions that are affecting companies. Um, and so I find that really interesting. I think I one day want to either lead a company from sort of the executive standpoint or from a financial standpoint. And so from that, it really does come from understanding how it works. So you are working really late, I think, on stuff that is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, the 5 a.m. nights are, are in every night, but it's when you have a deal that is going to keep you there and you're, you're towards the finish line, it is really, I would say, appealing. And it's a go, go, go environment that I wanted. I knew I was going to be someone that was bored if I was doing the same exact thing every single day. Um, So there are a a lot of positives, I would say, that come from it. But um, yeah, there's obviously the the 5 a.m. nights aren't great for anyone. Yeah. And so another like Frank moment on Twitter, you see people straight up shitting on people in corporate jobs in some circles and especially people thinking about you know capitalism and uplifting the black community and I just want to kind of hear what your thoughts are about that and like kind of how you position yourself as somebody who is black and like sees black people in the struggle and like what you think your responsibility to that or if you have none and no, definitely. I think that's, so I went to Wellesley and I would say that it was pretty, people were very open with the fact that they thought people who wanted to finance were like the devil. Um, I think it, that's a, it's complicated. I would also say that personally, I'm someone that paid for most of my college independently. My parents helped me a little bit, but I graduated with a significant amount of loans. Um, in terms of financially, it put me in a position that I'm paying off all my loans at 25. I couldn't have done that in any other industry. And truthfully, I often feel that a lot of the people that were often telling me, don't just do a job for the money. I would ask, do you have student debt? Like, how did you, mm-hmm. if you, if your parents pay, and, and that's great if people were in that position, but if someone's parents paid their entire way through school and are funding them deciding to be a teacher, which is great, but I, I, I knew my, I couldn't live with my friends on Park Avenue and still be doing that because my parents couldn't really help me in that same way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that one's often difficult, I, I think. But I also think there's other ways other than just your what you do from nine to five, if you will, that can be giving back, whether that's mm-hmm. in terms of volunteering. I'm very big in diversity um, recruiting initiatives. So I take really big pride in, I want there to be more black people on a team than when I joined. Um, while at City, I was I was very big in the recruiting and I do the same here. So 
I think there's other ways to also like kind of help out in that way. Um, but I also think in terms of more long-term, I would like to be in more of that nonprofit corporate route, but also mm-hmm. from a way of understanding big business. And I think yeah. shutting yourself off to, oh, it's the corporate job or it's capitalism and, and anything like that can be great. But I also think you could be learning out on skill sets that you could take from, hey, I can take my the skills I learned from Wall Street and apply them to my local neighborhoods. But if I never even spent time learning it, I wouldn't know that I could potentially do that. Completely. That's a really good point. And so, you know, you, you kind of touched on this earlier about, you know, wanting to your, your ultimate career goals. And do you think you can have it all like as a black woman in, in corporate yeah. America specifically? So I, I often, it's difficult. So they think that the having it all one is so different for every person and two mm-hmm. is such this, like, it's this third party aspect that no one's going to reach having it all. Right. If you think about it, okay. People think that having it all is married kids, 30 years old. Cool. Um, I think there's someone that could have all of that and not feel like they themselves have it all. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't think anyone can have it all. I think that there's going to be a push and give. I think that it also has a lot to do with the person that you're with. My boyfriend and I have a lot of conversations about the fact that we want to be in a two income household. We want to be like, we want there to be equality. And I think that that put that, that takes a lot of pressure off me or him individually to be that one person that's had, that's quote unquote, having it all. When you feel like you're supported that I don't have to have it all. Like I don't envision that I, in my having it all, it isn't that I'm working all of my hours and taking my phone calls from the soccer games and doing all that while my husband's at work. And I'm, that's, I'm thinking, hey, there's some meetings I'm going to be, or there's some meetings I will have to reschedule. There's some games I'll be at. There's some I won't. Mm-hmm. And it'll just really be a given, a push and get or give and take. Um, but that's all to say, I, I don't necessarily think someone can have it all, but I don't think that should necessarily be what you strive to have. I think it's yeah. just striving to be fulfilled in the aspects of your life that are important to you. And I guess it's early in your career to have to be making these big decisions, but do you feel that your bosses or that people who think that they're mentors to you, they might not actually be, um, <laughs> try to push you to start making decisions and sacrifices like that no I would say no um so I like I said before I've never worked under any woman so Mm. uh, I think that to me is obviously a a fear I look at okay the breakout point is often around business school often um and and 30 and mid 30s when people start Mm -hmm. having children um and so those there's a lot of things that play into that but I don't think today there's been any sacrifices that are necessarily asked in terms of um in terms of in the workplace but I do think just the nature of the job you are inherently making sacrifices in the Mm -hmm. outside of workplace so I think if I wasn't already dating someone it would be very difficult to try to date someone while working 100 hours a week um and having to be with someone that is really understanding of Hey, I've had to have dinners with my boyfriend at 11 PM one night because, Hey, I'm working. I I was working too late. Um, Mm -hmm. so no one asks you to, but I think that it kind of, as things become more important on both sides, there's just a, 
a given ask. And so what it really sounds like to me is that your occupational wellness, like the expectations of your job and kind of the ways in which you need to balance your life for your job to run properly, you have to give more to that realm. And so how do you find this balancing act in all the realms of wellness you need? Like, how do you kind of balance all of the, the things that you need to do to keep yourself well? Yeah, I would say first is my therapist. It's great. Uh, my therapist and my emotional support dog and I. Um, next would be, I. It's it's hard. The balancing act changes, and I think there's some times where your work might just have to take a little bit more backseat to your personal wellness at help like your personal health and wellness at a given time. Um, and I think COVID was one of those times where. I realized, hey, I really need to be taking care of myself better than I was before. And my Mm -hmm. first year and a half or going into COVID from graduating college, I think I was so, so go focus on work that I was really sacrificing those personal things. Um, So it's, I'd say it's checking in with myself and realizing, okay, when do I have to give and take, but a lot also has to be being in a work environment that um, supports that. My team now Mm -hmm. really really pushes taking vacation and taking time off. Um, I just took some time off for for sick leave because of some family health stuff. Um, And so that aspect of it, I think, makes the balancing act a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you you have work that happens and you have busy times, but taking vacations and taking that time you need to really check out for me has been really important. That's really special. And how do you feel that you've set those boundaries where you have been or how do you feel like you've been able to, you know, claim your wellness at work? Like, honestly, or do you think that's just part of the culture? You've learned the skills to be like, this is something I need. Yeah. So I think I didn't do it at all. My first job. Um, and a lot of that came into that fear that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and even looking at it, I think if you're not taking the time for yourself, your performance is affected and all of these things. Mm-hmm. I think going into my next role, I, I saw it a little bit more long dated than I did my first team. Um, so from that, I think I realized whatever boundaries I set here and whatever I establish is my sort of is what my day-to-day looks like. It's going to be what it looks like. So when I started, I started small. I kind of came in and I was the new hire and I said, oh, I normally am able to go to the gym at this time. Does this work? Mind you, I hadn't always gone to the gym, but I was able to sculpt out this time where, and yeah, that doesn't mean I'm not doing work. That means I'm adjusting my time and it has to do with me also establishing rapport with my team. Um, But I kind of tried to start it in small little buckets, but I think with the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that happened this past summer, I kind of got to a point where I realized if I'm not able to talk about being Black in the office, I'm going to quit one day. And I ended Mm -hmm. up sort of reaching out to my group heads and my staffer and having a conversation about, one, this is kind of how it's affecting me. And this is what's going on in the world. And this is also why it's important that we acknowledge these sorts of things on the team. Um, and so I was very, I was definitely afraid to do that, yeah. like we we're talking about before, but it was something that I realized if I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And also mm-hmm. if I don't try to do it, I don't know what my team's response is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think if they had a negative response, maybe I would have decided, Hey, I want to leave and I don't want to stay on. Um, but they had a positive response and I ultimately decided, Hey, I'm going to stay on. And I'm, I was just promoted and I'm staying on for at least the next year. 
Um, so that had a huge play into really feeling like, oh, I am in now a work environment where I feel like my wellness is a priority or at mm-hmm. least there is a door open to discuss it. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on your promotion. Oh, and thank you. You're very welcome. And that's awesome. I think that's so... I mean, it's scary to be vulnerable in any situation, but especially when this is like your lifeline, like this is your literally like how you get food. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. that's that's really scary. And I think, you know, it's important to recognize and stepping up at the workplace is important and like carving out a space where you have your rights as a worker, no matter how little, how much or what industry you're in you do that and I think it's really special that you did that for yourself especially as a black person too because yeah you'll get walked over (laughs) it is very true and it's the I think what I've learned and I I mean I've only been doing this for three years it's like if the unfortunate reality is if you don't speak up no one's going to speak up for you Mm -hmm. and I think that very much affects women and, and we're least we're like the least likely black women specifically we're the least likely to um, speak up for ourselves and really yeah. we're, we're naturally very humble people. And so the, a large portion of our income is based on our bonus. And so how do you self-report and all these things? And how do you feel like, oh, am I being over bragging or am I not speaking up in these different ways where I think I realized one, there's going to be people that come below me that don't feel like they have the support or ability to speak up. And I want to be that for them. And secondly, if I'm not that for myself, no one else is going to, because there isn't someone above me. There isn't someone that looks like me for me to look up to. So I need to ultimately start becoming that so that when my little brother is starting and in 20 years, if my kids decide to do it or 30 years, if my kids decide (laughs) to do that math a little more, they decide to do it. There is more of an established groundwork, at least a trail behind me Mm -hmm. um, that, that doesn't exist before me. That's awesome, Sydney. That's really, really dope. Um, so, the last question, and I ask all my guests this, but what does wellness mean to you? That's a difficult question. I think that's something I've been thinking about a lot this year. I think that I used to think a lot more in terms of physical wellness, but I think it's a lot more holistic. Um, for me, it's just being in tune with what is good for me and what's not good for me in all senses in terms of family friends reassessing are these are my best friends the best friends or um is my boyfriend being great in this moment or fret all of these things i think it's really trying to make myself and trying to make yourself more of a priority and listening to what your body and mind wants and doesn't want that's a wonderful answer Thank you so much, Sydney. Thank this you. Thanks for having me. Wonderful conversation. <laughs> Everybody, thank you for listening and stay tuned after the short break. Your wellness tip of the week and your wellness question will be answered. Thanks again, Sydney. No problem. Let's be honest. Wellness is hard, but it doesn't need to be. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're looking for ways to approach your wellness that accounts for the wholeness of you. I'm excited to announce to my listeners that I'm launching Accountable, a one-on-one wellness coaching program with me, Lexi, the founder of LRH Wellness and host of Well, Well, Well. As your coach and wellness champion, I will work to create a tailored program that will guide you to achieving your wellness goals. Sign up today for a free consultation while spots remain. 
wellness tip is all about social fatigue after the pandemic. Pandemic. Wow, the panorama. You know what I'm talking about. It's, we're tired. We're tired. We're tired. And the idea of going to bars, hanging out, going to clubs, seeing all these people you didn't see in a year and a half is overwhelming. Making new friends. A lot of people's lives change so dramatically. They're in new places. And the idea of interacting and finally having to be out and about and find new social circles is terrifying. So why are we so exhausted? You know, we've been living on the edge of trauma this whole year. And that has not only a mental toll, but a physical toll on our bodies. And we're living that now. And, you know, we also have to think about, I saw a tweet that was like, you know, I've wait, pre-pandemic, wake up, out for 14 hours, do this, do that, do that. Post-pandemic, I go to the store, I'm exhausted and need a 14-hour nap. And it's obviously a facetious tweet, but in reality, it's true. We did so much pre-pandemic, and the small things just drain us. And I think, you know, it really calls into question if what we were doing before was even normal. Were we doing too much? Should we have taken a break? I think yes. I think this pandemic revealed that, like, humans have limits. We should honor them, and we should honor ourselves. You know, last week I talked all about rest. And really taking rest, really making space for rest is so important. And I think the pandemic really showed us that we should be making time for us year round. But long story short, I think that, you know, what we were doing before wasn't necessarily normal. And like, we all need to scale it back dramatically. And part of that is that, you know, humans aren't primed for social media and to keep, keep up with so many people constantly. Like, you know, we often think of social time as being face-to-face -face with people. We exclude time on FaceTime, commenting on Instagram posts, liking Instagram posts, Snapchatting people, texting, responding to tweets. We don't think of that as social time, but it is. It's draining, and it's part of that social energy bar you have, right? We only have so much energy to give in a social sphere. And every time we're scrolling on social, we are texting, calling, FaceTiming, which are all beautiful things and have their role in their own way, it depletes from that energy bar. And so then what happens is you go out for three hours to a long dinner or dinner and a movie and you do all these things with your friends and you wonder why you're so exhausted. Because you didn't account for the two, three, four hours you were on your phone calling, texting, Snapchatting, Instagramming, you know, all this stuff. And so we have to think very critically of how we're using our social time and how we are making the most of that energy we have because it is limited, right? You know, everybody talks about how the world is energy, everything is energy, but like, I, I mean this in a very like kind of tangible way of like, you only have so much to give to other people in time, emotion, your own personal energy, and that is emotional, spiritual, your listening ability, your ability to focus on a conversation, to empathize with people, you can only do but so much in one day. And so you spend that time on social media, on phone, all that stuff, it depletes an energy bar, which is fine. But then you also have to account for that if you want to have a big social night, you know, maybe you're taking less time on social media, less time calling people, less time texting people that day, because you know, you're gonna have such an energy depletion at night. And so what are some tips for dealing with social fatigue. You know, always taking a step back and saying it's okay to cancel plans, great thing. But setting a deadline for yourself and your friends, you know, people often start and say like, hey, do you wanna hang out at 9 p.m.? But don't put an end time. 
It's okay to put an end time, especially now. Hey, do you want to hang out 9 till 11? You can give an excuse, I just want to get to bed early, or you not. Get the F out my house at 11, or I am going at 11. Or schedule something for yourself right after. You know, you can do it in a lot of ways, but set an end time. Have an end point that you are comfortable with, that your peers, the people around you know, or that you will just honor as a hard exit. Additionally, start small. You know, you don't need to go to the biggest club with 20 of your best friends the first night. You can start by inviting one friend you haven't seen in a while over for a wine night or a movie where you don't even have to talk as much. Or you can start with seeing one or two friends in a low-key restaurant or going on a walk or going to a park and doing something that doesn't take a ton of your social energy out. You don't have to see everybody all at once and you don't have to do it every single day. Pace yourself, pace yourself, pace yourself. And what's so important is giving yourself grace. This is a big adjustment. A year and a half with minimal social interaction is no small thing. So finding ways to give yourself grace, to give yourself credit for every small step you make to becoming that social butterfly. And for people who aren't super outgoing but still craving that social interaction, you know, making the small steps, giving somebody a hello, nodding at somebody in the street or saying hi or asking somebody to hang out with you. Those are all really big things. So you should give yourself credit for it and give yourself grace for times where you just have no energy to hang out with people. When you need to be alone, embrace that time. That's okay. Being alone is a beautiful thing. But, you know, encourage yourself to still try and be social because we do want to build our social wellness up. This week's wellness question on the same line, well, actually, no, sorry, not the same line at all. That's wellness question for next episode, little preview. But this week's wellness question is, I don't know if I should be wearing a mask or not. What should I do? So it is, you know, similar to the tip about the pandemic, but what should you do? And I think everybody's kind of asking themselves this question. So the CDC, this is exact quotes, says masks are required on planes, bus, buses, trains, and other forms of public transportation traveling into, within, or out of the United States and in U.S. transportation hubs, such as airports and stations. Travelers are not required to wear a mask in outdoor areas of a conveyance, uh, like a ferry on top of the deck of a bus. The CDC recommends that travelers who are not fully vaccinated continue to wear a mask and maintain physical distance when traveling. If you are fully vaccinated, you can resume activities that you did prior to the pandemic. So if you're fully vaccinated, the CDC is saying back to normal. Now, we know the CDC is a government organization with a lot of motives, and it's been kind of complicated to follow, and you have to think of what are the different governmental motives and who the CDC is, you know, working to benefit and all of those great things. But what I'm doing is really kind of gauging the scenarios I'm in. So I know that like children cannot get vaccinated or are the lowest group of uptake for the vaccine if they can. So, you know, I'm much more cognizant of wearing a mask around children. So if I'm going to like a grocery store and I see there's a lot of parents with kids or if I'm like in a park and there's like a lot of kids around, I try and keep my mask on. Additionally, I like to see like what other people are doing in the area and if they're not wearing their mask, I ask also like if I'm 
Like, so I always wear masks in Ubers or, like, in the car with strangers and whatnot. But, like, let's say I'm in a store and there's only, like, me and the shopkeeper. And I notice they, they're, like, half wearing a mask. I'll say, like, oh, are you comfortable with mask on or off? And follow their suit. Now, so for me, I don't mind wearing a mask, but I wear a mask by default. My default is to wear a mask unless, like, I'm eating or out exercising. Like, a gym is a big one. So a gym's a great question of, like, should you wear a mask or not? I kind of gauge what other people in the gym are doing. Because remember, the mask protects other people. So if I see that, you know, people are wearing masks, I try and honor that. Or I try and stay in areas where people aren't wearing masks if I don't want to wear a mask. Or I work out in place, like, areas. If I don't want to wear a mask, I work out in areas where nobody's wearing a mask. If everybody's wearing a mask, obviously I'm going to wear a mask. But, um, like, in my building, there's a small gym, and I walk in, and the guy didn't have a mask on because it was just him. And so I walked in, I said, hi, I'm, no, I'm vaccinated. I'm comfortable if you keep your mask off, if you're okay with that. He's like, awesome, I'm vaccinated as well. That's okay with me. Great conversation, normal. And that's fine. When I'm in large groups of people my age... I tend to not wear a mask if they're not wearing masks. So that's like in a bar, for example, I haven't been wearing masks. And I'm going to be honest, like, you know, I'm getting drinks, I'm with people, I'm talking. And it's not that that's an excuse, but I'm reading the room. If I'm seeing people pulling up their mask as they're drinking, then to me that indicates that probably more people are not vaccinated. Whereas, you know, if they are, then they're not. So uh, if they aren't, then maybe they're not. And again, you know, it's all guessing game, but I think it's a lot about comfort, what you're willing to do, and the people you're around. So if you know that there's a lot of people you're around who haven't been vaccinated, definitely wear a mask. If everybody you know is vaccinated, think of the people who might be a little more immunocompromised or have different health things that might affect their, you know, um, ability to fight COVID. But my whole thing is just like having a conversation with the people you see most often or the smaller groups you're in. And when you're in these larger spaces, just genuinely reading the room. So it's kind of a non-answer to the person who asked this, but I tend to wear my mask mainly around people who I know can't uptake the vaccine. So that's like children. I know a lot of elderly people have been having some hesitancy with vaccines. I ask, you know, like honestly, when I'm in a group of like black people, because I know Sometimes black people aren't, you know, we had a whole conversation about vaccine hesitancy with black people. And I, I'll ask people, I was like, are you vaccinated? Is it okay if I wear a mask or not? So that's kind of been my approach. I hope this helps the person who asked this. And I'll see you guys on Friday. Thanks for listening to another episode of Well, Well, Well by LRH Wellness. If you found this podcast helpful or it resonated with you, make sure you like, subscribe, share, and give it a five-star rating. Check out lrhwellness.com to see available wellness programs and consider supporting work. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.